This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellersley.com to learn more. So I am in a series, and it's been a unique series. It's called The Dangerous Edge, and it's deeply stirring me because I, I would say the theme in my life, and it's not just over these past five weeks, uh, but it's, uh, it's something that God's been doing for years in my life, but there are seasons when he sharpens the pencil. You ever had it where you have a firm conviction on something and then your pencil just sort of gets dull and you're still working with it, but your, your writing isn't as clear as it was. And then God sort of reminds you that there's a pencil sharpener right there, but you sort of wonder if you really want to stick your pencil in that <laughs> pencil sharpener uh, because you sort of adapt to the blurry lines. And for me, this is a sharpening series where God is reminding me of that which matters deeply. And I, I so resonate with what we are uh, walking through. But this goes back to uh, a visit from a guy named Dan Brocky who came to the campus. He's the uh, president of Bethany International. And we had a really neat conversation. And there was just a few things that he said that just stood out to me. Have you ever had one of those conversations where maybe what they are saying, if, if, they, if the takeaway for them, if you said, what would have really impacted Eric out of that conversation, you probably would have picked something else. But, then, but sometimes it just strikes you in the way that you need to be struck. So you pick out an obscure statement that they made. It's like, that really stuck out to me. And that's the way I feel about this conversation with Dan is he was just describing the mission statement for Bethany International. And he says, you know, our... Our, our purpose is to take the, the church where it is not and then teach others to do the same. And so we go to the unreached. Well, that, that's not shocking to me. I mean, isn't that what I live for? Isn't this called Ellerslie Mission Society? Isn't this what we do? And yet it's funny, but in a time of COVIDization, I now have a new term for it, uh, it, it sort of wraps a lacquer about us, almost like this goo around us, which causes us to lose a global vision and we just sort of go into a local vision. And there was something about that that was deeply stirring because to go in that direction is dangerous. And that was a term that he used where one of his, and I, I've, I've said this story multiple times and I'm sure I'm butchering the story because, you know, it's, to me it's just sort of these vaporous things that I was gathering together and putting together and, and cobbling together in my mind. If he were to come up and share the same story, you guys would say, Eric totally missed it. However, what I was gathering was very important to me. I picture this board member coming in and he sticks his long bony finger in everyone's face on the board and he says, guys, if we're going to preach this and teach this, we need to live this. And so he moved to New Delhi to live on the dangerous edge. And that's, in my memory, that's how he said it. And so that's what triggers this domino effect inside of me of saying, Eric, what about the dangerous edge? And that's where I re recognize in a moment like that that you have somewhat of a dull pencil because I theoretically, theologically, doctrinally agree. 
But practically, I didn't find myself in a ready position to say, can I go now? It would be more like, well, I'll have to ponder this. Let me ponder it for a few months and get back to you. It's one of those types of things, and I don't like it. When I see a halt or a stop in my response that tries to self-justify. You guys ever uh, dealt with self-justification in yourself? If you haven't, I'd be interested to know a little more about you. Of course, is the answer. In other words, we have a natural bent to, to excusing ourselves, to coming up with an instant reason why that doesn't apply to us. And so that's what this series has been. It's just hit this idea from multiple angles to ready us, to sharpen us for the time in which we live. Grand Christianity has always been lived in the dangerous edge. But the dangerous edge is dangerous. I mean, you can die there. And yet, that's where the greatest work of grace oftentimes takes place. You look at any of the unreached people groups, and one of the things that will be a common statement about all of them is it is very dark spiritually there. If you've ever noticed the impacts of darkness upon any culture, it becomes the opposite of Jesus Christ, which means it is not merciful, it is not loving, it is not kind, it is not gentle, it is not just. When darkness rules, it becomes very, very dangerous for light. And so as a result, to go where the gospel isn't is by the very definition of light and darkness going to be dangerous. And so for us all to begin to adopt the mentality that God isn't against us entering into difficulties and dangers, in a strange sense, he's commissioned us to do it. You look at the Great Commission, and you might as well just call it the Dangerous Commission. So this one is called the Ultimate Action Figure. Uh, sort of a fun title, don't you think? So the Man of Action I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a man of action. It's not as common of a phrase as we use, as it used to be in the uh, sort of the elder uh, generations. Would, would, they would understand that term, a man of action, a man who gets things done, a man who doesn't just talk but does. And I would say one of the highest virtues in the previous generations has been being a man of action, a person of action, as opposed to a person of talking. Uh, there's nothing quite like a person who just talks and talks and talks and never does. There's something disturbing about it. And yet it's very common in the church of Jesus Christ to be a person that talks. We gather and we say noble, grand things, but we don't do. And that idea is the opposite of being a man of action. So if we're going to sharpen the pencil, we sort of need to touch on that. One of In, in our local uh, community... One of my favorite men of action is Dwight Schubert. And if any of you have met Dwight, uh, it's sort of hard to argue. Man, uh, Dwight is a very, very unique character. And I have multiple uh, stories that I could tell about Dwight where I have called him up without any warning and said, Dwight, I have a need. And sometimes that need can be rather daunting, uh, even for me to ask, let alone for him to respond. And without question, the staff at Ellerslie can uh, be a witness to this. Dwight, I mean, he has said this, I, I will, I'm gonna talk with Sherry and I'll get right back to you. But in a matter of like minutes, I can get a call back from Dwight that says, I'm ready to go to Haiti. I mean, boom, 
he's ready to go. And it's always impressed me because it's not just a, I don't want to just focus on Dwight because Dwight, maybe his personality is inclined to grand adventure, right? Whereas some of us are like, you know, I'm just not inclined to that. I'm glad there are Dwights out there, but I'm not a Dwight. And that's probably true that Dwight does have something, maybe a little extra something uh, in his getup uh, that is, enables him to do things that are a little more bold than the rest of us. However, he has something that is also an inspiration to all of us that maybe are lacking, which is the same that is true. I could take any one of you and pull out a virtue, and it could inspire the rest of us, not to justify why we don't have it, but to actually inspire us to say, I want what that one has. And so man, man, the man of action, I would say, is one of the things I want each of us to begin to just crave. If you don't have it and you find yourself constantly excusing yourself, going, well, here's the reason I can't do that. I want us to be just freshly convicted today and to go into the pencil sharpener and just say, God, sharpen me in this area. Because the one who lives inside of us is a man of action. His name is Jesus Christ. So in battle, there are two styles, uh, and you'll notice this throughout military history. I, I went through a whole 93-episode uh, series on World War II last year, and so I got to see a whole bunch of this. Uh, there's two styles, very definitive styles, in military movements. One is the responsive, and the other is the aggressive. And it's interesting because I, even as I was studying it, the responsive style usually falls to pieces. It's not, uh, it's not a good style, and yet it still exists. And here's what's funny is in Christianity, the responsive style leads to a deterioration of the Christian life, and yet it still exists. How do you explain that? In other words, just because it's a style doesn't mean it's a good one. Then there's the aggressive style, which takes it to the enemy. It doesn't wait for the enemy to attack and then responds. It takes it to the enemy. Because it recognizes that the enemy is scheming and the enemy is going to continue to marshal more and more strength while you have the clarity, while you know his position, hit him and hit him hard. And so there's a great illustration of this in the, it's typically called the Mediterranean Theater of World War II. Many of us as Americans don't know anything about the Mediterranean Theater. It's funny, we know about the Western Front, maybe the Pacific, but there's other fronts in it. There's actually quite a few different fronts in World War II. But the Mediterranean Theater, sort of down in the Middle East, was a critical theater. It was, it was a battle, I mean, to say it was over oil wouldn't be far removed, even though the politics would never allow anyone to say that. Uh, but it was uh, a very, very critical juncture in the war. In fact, the World War II is going to hinge for the British at the Battle of El Alamein, which is in this theater, and that's actually going to turn the war. So what is going to happen here is actually going to play into that. So, sorry, I'm not trying to teach on World War II. It is sort of fun to get back into my combat boots and mention a story from it, though. So we have uh, General Alan Cunningham, who is going to be given an assignment. Uh, General Claude Auchinleck is over the entire uh, Mediterranean theater for the British, and he is going to give the assignment to this guy. This guy has a very, very specific methodology. He is passive. Winston Churchill isn't happy with this, but he's going to support Auchinleck. And he's going to allow him to make this decision. But this is sort of what we oftentimes do in our Christianity. We choose a General Alan Cunningham for our decision-making processes. And here's his mentality. Let's not risk too much. 
let's see what the Germans do. Let's hole up here and wait and see. And I would say that it's very likely that many of us have adopted a General Allen Cunningham approach to our Christian military exercise. And this man was a great military man. There's no question about it. A wonderful strategist, a great mind for battle. He was built for this, trained at the highest levels. And yet when it came down to action, he did not have it. And we have this guy who just sort of looks the part, too, of what he, what he fulfills, and his name is General Neil Ritchie. Now, General Neil Ritchie was passed over by Auchinleck, and Cunningham was chosen, just like it has a tendency to happen in our life. We know, we've read the stories, the biographies of the men of action throughout history, and we still have a tendency to pass over this model in our own soul. The General Neil Ritchie. Look at that guy. Now, if you're, if you're only getting this uh, via podcast, you probably need to look up a picture of General Neil Ritchie from World War II. Uh, quite the character that fits this. Now, l- listen to what his philosophy is. We can't wait another minute. This is the moment. This is the hour. There is a window of opportunity here, and I, for one, don't want to miss it. This guy is chomping at the bit. Cunningham's driving him crazy. We have to act now. And so you have two different things. I don't know if this sounds like what's going on inside of you, too. As you see the times in which we live, there is a Cunningham Bates Oh, hey, let's just wait and see what happens. Let's see if the government finally lifts its, uh, you know, its closures and you know, finally gives us back maybe some privileges. Then we can decide if we ever want to share the gospel again. And then you have this Richie side that's like, guys, the time is short. This is the hour. This is the window. We have to jump on it. We have to do something now. You have this tension. So Auchinleck, I I introduced you to him even though I haven't given you a global understanding. He's the general over the entire theater who has chosen Cunningham to sort of represent his viewpoint and to carry out the battle. We're in this position. We're in the Auchinleck position where we have to choose how we're going to marshal this one life that we have. We have resource. We have time. We have energy. We have skill. We have opportunity. But what are we doing with it? Are we sitting on our thumbs like a Cunningham or are we leaning forward and smoking our pipe like a Richie and just sort of puffing out going, we have to get him. You can just sort of see Richie. His mouth was sort of contorted too as he talked. You could just imagine. He probably had some tobacco in there too with his pipe. You know, he's, he's just, he's ready for battle. Some of you are like, is this the Christian model that you're giving me, Eric? So Auchinleck's moment was, this is right before uh, D, uh, D-Day, this is right before uh, Pearl Harbor is actually going to take place. So you can just sort of get your, your time frame, November 23rd through 25th, 1941. Well, we're in 2021, 80 years later, and this is our moment of decision. We have to decide what we're going to do. We have Erwin Rommel, who is the unstoppable uh, you know, desert fox down there of the Germans, and he is... He has been such a pest, and we cannot seem to overcome him. That's the way we feel in our culture right now. We have an Erwin Rommel that has been controlling the territory, and he is intimidating to the point where many of us are just back on our haunches. Cunningham's greatest concern is he doesn't want to lose any more tanks. In all of history, isn't that the most ridiculous concern this guy has? He's concerned about losing more tanks. What about losing the world? What about the ideology of the entire world going down the tank? You see, we have a job to do, and this is the window of time. We're in it. Auchinleck's moment, or the church's moment, right now. 
two, the two very different men, the reticent and the ready. General Alan Cunningham, he's reticent to go. He's the man of a thousand excuses. He's reserved, cautious, and hesitant. And I want you to just grade your soul on where you're at. Okay, the high likelihood is that we are Cunningham and not Richie. Okay, that's why I'm bringing it up. Because I feel like as the church, we have been groomed in the school of Cunningham. We think like Cunningham. We esteem Cunningham. We love Cunningham. Don't criticize my hero. My hero is Alan Cunningham. And I, poor guy, he gets like thrown under the bus in my message. He's probably just a wonderful guy, or was. Uh, now let's look at General Alan, or Neil Ritchie. He's ready to attack. He's ready to be sent. He's eager, desirous to be spent. He's bold, courageous, daring, and audacious. Now if I were to ask you which one do you think the Spirit of God is desiring to raise up in this hour, I think we all know, and of course the way I'm presenting this message sort of makes it obvious, right? I'm, I'm like criticizing Cunningham and I'm raising up Richie uh, and I'm overlooking his pipe smoking, you know, all that. And you guys are like, you're totally ignoring the fact that this guy has problems. I'm sure he does. However, it's the attitude towards military action that I'm wanting to amplify and bring to the surface. So General Auchinleck is going to make a huge decision in the midst of this. You know one of his best friends is a guy named Alan Cunningham? One of your best friends is that mentality in your life too. It has been a long time friend and it has kept you out of a lot of problems in your life. General Alan Cunningham is one of his best friends. General Alan Cunningham's brother is over the entire naval operations of, the, of Great Britain. So he's one of the most important men in all of Great Britain. You don't want to get on that guy's bad side. Auchinleck knows that to win this war, he can't stick with Cunningham. So he is going to fire him. I have reluctantly concluded, says Auchinleck, that Cunningham, admirable as he has been up to date, has now begun to think defensively. He's out. We need Richie. So Richie gets the job. Isn't that fun? Isn't that a great story? I just threw that in. I mean, Eric's been itching to get a little World War II back into something, right? So I found a way. Always be ready. Uh, Who does that make you think of here at Ellerslie? Uh, Preston, who does that make you think of? Dan? Uh, Philip, who does that make you think of? Dan? Uh, How come no one's thinking of me? What in the the world? No, I'm joking. It makes you think of Dan. Dan wears a t-shirt almost every day. I don't know if he has 10 of them or whatever, but they always says, always be ready. And that's his motto. We even have an always be ready night uh, here that usually Nathan will lead, right? And he has his... Uh, his, is it a bucket or is it a can? I, I forgot what it is. And it has all the names of all the students that are here. This is going to scare students from coming to Ellerslie, maybe. <laughs> and he'll pull out a name, and that student needs to be ready to share truth. And it's actually invigorating. So for all of you that are thinking about coming to Ellerslie, but now are questioning if you should, it, even for the students, they love it. It is a fun exercise. And, uh, you know, we, I, you have to talk to Nathan about it. Maybe he can remove your name from the can. Have you ever removed a name from the can? For $50. (laughs) But this is a concept that we promote here at Ellerslie, which is the readiness position. So one of the ways that I teach it, because we all have our different ways, like Nathan with his can that he shakes and then draws out names, Dan with his t-shirts and his mottos and his mustache. You know, there's different things that have communicated a lean forward position, right? 
It's funny because we can preach a lean forward position and not always be in one. And one of the illustrations that uh, I, I like to give is I usually pick a guy in the, the front row uh, and I say, hey, could you stand up for me? And then I come up to him and shove him. I know it's terrible, but terribly fun for me. And the guy falls backwards in his seat. And he's, you know, for a guy, that's, that's not a very fun experience. You know, everyone's watching and sort of chuckling, like, what was that? And so I asked the guy why he fell backwards. And he's looking at me like, what do you mean, why did I fall backwards? You just shoved me. And uh, so I asked if he would be willing to help with the demonstration again. Could he stand up again? Well, he's a little, you know, uh, dubious about such a notion as to do this again. But he usually agrees. It's like, look, you know, I'll walk you through something a little easier this time. And then he stands up and I ask, I, I declare to him something. I am about to shove you. How does that change your position? You see, a man, when he knows he's going to be shoved, when he knows he's going to encounter a difficulty, what's he going to do? He is going to change his position. And so the same is true with our spiritual life. Why are we standing around ready to be shoved by the devil instead of being in a position? It's called a wrestler's stance. The reason a wrestler's stance even exists is because you know you're about to engage in combat. And so if you know you're about to engage, what do you do? You get ready to engage. You know what the Bible talks about being ready to engage? has a very specific terminology that it builds out throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, it is going to talk about this. And there is something about the disposition of the believer, the man, the woman of faith, that is actually in a position to grapple. It is not going to be shoved backwards. Why? Because it has heeded the word of God and has been prepared and readied for the day in which it lives. So here's our term. I know, sort of an awkward one. My mom used to say this term, and I did not like it because I'm a word person, remember? And so the word loins is one of the ugliest words I've ever heard. And so gird your loins. And I was like, I don't want to gird my loins. I don't even like loins, whatever loins are. I didn't like that at all. And so uh, the loins, I don't know that I really want to go into what loins are, but let's just say the waist, okay? Let's just call it that. It's the center of your being. It's the core of your existence. You're supposed to gird yourself. It's interesting, you know, we, many of us here are uh, trained in the core, ITC, and so Aaron Vogel has this great workout system, and uh, so you learn how to, be, how to work out from core strength. It's, it's actually a great model. That's just the Bible, to work out from the core. And so in physical activities, you have a core. In spiritual activities, you have to have a core. And that core must be girded. It must be strong and it must be ready. If your core is weak, you're going down. So gird your loins. To gird, which also is girt. My, my grandma's name is girt, what was, uh, girt, grandma girt. And then I think about this, it's like, that's sort of weird. Uh, But hey, it's a good meaning. And then girded is another use of the word. So it means to make tight and strong by binding, to put on, to clothe, to dress, to habit, to furnish, to equip, to surround, to encircle, to enclose, to encompass. But here's the definition I most want to draw out. To be made ready for instant, immediate action. To gird. In other words, if you're being girded, if you are girding yourself, you are preparing for action. 
And so in every situation, like I, I typically think sports, but military, there's, there's definitely a girding that's going to take place in the military, which is where the term was originally going to be uh, fostered. But it, I think sports, like for instance, when you're on the line and you're about ready to hike the ball and you are either on the offensive or defensive line, what are you doing? You're girding yourself. You are because you're just about ready for impact. And that impact could be, on the other side of that line, could be a 380-pound lineman. And if you're just about to go head-to-head with a 380-pound lineman, first of all, it helps if you're 380 pounds. If you're my size, I'm not exactly sure you might want to run, but you you don't want to do that. Uh, You just might want to be smart. It's one of those things where the lineman goes, and you dodge to the side, and he goes flying, and then you go. All right, but you still have to gird yourself for that quick maneuver. All right, so I have a few different definitions that I just lifted out of the, the, the world, okay? Now, I'm not a big supporter of Wikipedia or freedictionary.com, but I have some, just to give you some well-rounded thoughts on this. The term gird your loins was used in the Roman era, meaning to pull up and tie one's lower garments between one's legs to increase one's mobility in battle. In the modern age, it has become an idiom, meaning to prepare oneself for the worst, The free dictionary. To gird your loins means to prepare yourself mentally to do something difficult. This phrase comes from the Bible, where girding up your loins meant to tie up long, loose clothes so that they were more practical when you were working or traveling. And then here's actually a description of girding your loins, which I've read through about three or four times, and I still could never repeat it and nor demonstrate it for you, okay? This is a very confusing definition, but maybe some of you will actually, it's like reading the book of Ezekiel and someone saying, so tell me about the wheels on the chariot, uh, you know, the one that comes down from heaven. I have no idea. That didn't make any sense to me. That's about the, what this feels like to me. Girding your loins is something you would find people doing a couple thousand years ago in Near East Asia and around the Mediterranean just before they attempted anything strenuous and physical such as going into battle. The floor-length robes would quite likely get in the way, so they would need to be tucked out of the way. Okay, I understand it so far, by the way. This was accomplished by pulling up the fabric of the knee-length tunic to the, so the length in front stopped at your upper thigh and collecting the excess material in your front. You pull the material forward so the back of your tunic is snug against your backside. All right, I think I, I, think I have it. It's something like this, and then... Uh, next, you tuck the extra front material down between your legs and gather it behind you. So wait, I go like this, and then I tuck it, but that's how I made it tight. So what, how do I? Uh, and then it gets more confusing. At this point, you collect half of the material behind you evenly on each side of your back, left and right. The final step involves wrapping each side of the material around your waist and tying it, in, to, it together in front. This gets you ready for battle and the robes are neatly tucked out of the way. It makes sense from this that the phrase has now come to mean getting yourself prepared for some trial to come. So maybe we could have a demonstration and one of you could come up and show us how this works. For whatever reason, I lose it somewhere in there. I'm guessing there has to be some some wrap. I just cannot mentally get it. But I do know that we have a lot of fabric and that fabric is in the way if I'm trying to do something here, Right. And so I need to get that fabric and I need to gird it. So I need to gird my loins. And that's what it meant when they were going to sprint or run, when they were going to fight in battle. I don't know what it would look like. My mental picture is somewhat funny. 
because I picture this wad of fabric in front and these guys are trying to fight with this wad in front of them. I'm guessing it was a little tighter and a little more snug and probably even nice looking, okay? Like where a girl would walk by and see the guy and go, oh. Uh, as opposed to what I picture, which is just this big wad of fabric, okay? So uh, <clears throat> Luke 12:35. So this idea in scripture is actually a very, very common one. If we just went through all the uses of the word gird, it's massive. It's a very, very common term. But what you're going to see is that Jesus is going to give a very, very specific commission to his disciples, yes, but to the church of Jesus Christ all throughout the ages of how we are to be ready in an instant. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. So there seems to be this idea culturally of being ready, and that's what the waist girded would mean, but also a lamp burning, which means you're watchful, because they didn't have the street lamps, you didn't have your iPhone, you know, uh, that you could just sort of turn on the flashlight. It was a lamp. For a lamp to burn, you need something. You need oil. And so as a result, to gird your waist, it's a purposeful readying, and to have a lamp burning, you need fresh oil, always. And so as a result, you're going to see these two things be part of what I'm going to say is for the sharpening of our pencil today. That I do not want us to be caught with our gown flowing on the ground right now. I want us, even though we might not know how to do it practically, physically, to tie and gird this, we do know spiritually how to get into a position to say, God, I'm ready. God, I'm ready to do what you ask of me. And what is that oil? It's the Holy Spirit. We need to freshly give ourselves to God to say, God, without you inside of me, I can't do this. I need all that you intend to give me. I need you doing the work. So here's the passage, Luke 12, 35 through 38. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Isn't that an interesting word? Immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and will have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. We'll revisit this scripture in just a bit. So I'm, I've been giving out some great games uh, throughout the Dangerous Edge series. I mean, I've given you guys some great games to play. I like playing games. And yet these aren't board games, these are life games. And so I'm not gonna review all the games, but let's just suffice it to say you can listen to the previous four and you could be actively uh, engaged in game playing for quite some time. But they're, they're life games. This is a life game as well. So I call this the Caged Lion. Isn't that a cool looking game? Okay, now if you're getting this via podcast, you can't see my cool picture of a lion who's like pacing or a CT stud says fretting. Uh, in his cage. He's fretting. He so wants to get out. He so wants to spring forth. And this is precisely how we are in our spiritual life. This is watching. We are waiting for the gate to open. We don't know when it's going to open, but we're ready to spring forth. So the subtitle to this game is Ready to Spring into Action. How fast can you leap from the cage into full action mode? So there was a term in that Luke passage which was immediately open the door. The king knocks, immediately 
they open the door. So imagine when the king knocks, there's a clock that starts ticking. So the game is, how quickly can you open the door? How quickly can you engage with a yes to your king's commission? Whatever your king asks, the answer is yes. How quickly can you get the yes out and be with girded waist and burning lamp, ready to do what he's asking you to do? Have you ever noticed that there is a tendency to be a sluggishness in our life? Like God gives us a commission and we don't really feel comfortable with the commission, so we bide our time. We get busy with something to be distracted from it, and then when we get still again, there it is again, and so we make some noise and we pray about something that we know God would be interested. Oh, Lord Jesus, bring revival to the nations, and he's like, I'm talking to you very specifically about something. And we're trying to busy ourselves to somehow cloud out whatever that clear commission is, because that clear commission gulp would mean challenge, would mean difficulty, would mean discomfort, would mean inconvenience, and technically our natural man isn't that interested. But our spiritual man has to be the one we're listening to. There's flesh and there's spirit. You choose who your counselor is. If you are listening to the flesh, you will find yourself putting out your lamp, untying your robe, and you will lose that connection with your king. You will lose the availability. The king is looking for servants that are ready and waiting with their waist girded and their lamps burning, that are ready to open the door saying, so glad you're home, king. So we measure in weeks, God measures in microseconds. Well, I did obey. I don't know how many of you have ever had the consolation in your soul that even though it took you about a month to say yes to God, uh, you finally did. <laughs> now, praise God you did. In other words, I'm not going to discourage you <laughs> at all from actually coming to that place because that's the grace of God that has brought you there. And many of us have walked through that process. Whether it's confess this or whether it's give this. You ever had a, a bit of money that you have sort of a plan for and God has a different plan for it. Oh boy, that's painful. And God keeps sort of pointing at that like, yeah, that remember we had a plan for that. And you're thinking you had a plan for it, God. I don't think I ever had that plan. And yet your plan needs to be his plan needs to become your plan. And how quickly his plan becomes your plan is how you win the game, the cage lion. You see, many of us are not fretting inside of our cage desiring for our master to give us a commission. We're actually sort of trying to busy ourselves so when our master gives a commission, we can weigh it and ponder it and think if we want to do it. That isn't how the kingdom of heaven works. So I'm going to give you some samples. These are some samples that I've had in my life, okay? And I'm just going to bring you into my samples. And I'm not going to say you've had the exact same things. But it's likely, since we're all sort of in this human condition, that you will relate even though some of the terminology would be different. Eric, wake up. Would you join me in prayer? I have a love for sleep that I didn't realize I had until Hudson was born. And then when Hudson was born, less than I didn't get any sleep for about five months to the point where it was like, psychologically beginning to break us down. He had extreme acid reflux and, and 
it was a very challenging season in life. And so suddenly my craving for sleep was exposed at <laughs> that time. My selfish yearning for sleep, I mean, it just rose to the surface like, wow, do I crave sleep. And so I've had God correct me on this and work and sharpen the pencil in this area. And I had a whole season of my life where I could be w- woken up by the Spirit of God in the middle of the night and joyfully begin to pray. Yeah, I mean, if it sounds like I'm bragging, I'm not bragging because that also went away, (laughs) where I lost that sharpness too. And then I've regained the sharpness, and then I've lost the sharpness. And that's why this type of a question touches me, because I want to be available. My my communication with God is God 24-7. The way I say it is there's no ungodly hour. You know how people say that's an ungodly hour. Now that's, there's the problem right there. Every hour is a godly hour, which means every hour is a God potential hour where he can call on me. If he has something going on on the other side of the world that he is looking for an intercessor for, I don't want him to have to skip over Eric because, oh, Eric sure isn't sharp right now. Eric doesn't have his waistcoat and his lamp burning. I want God to find me and to say, I have my man. I know exactly where he is. Every time I need him, he's right there. That's what I crave. However, that question brings that up afresh in my life. Eric, open your wallet. Would you give that money away? I had, this is a painful thought. I I, I love Hudson Taylor's story about, uh, I forgot, half crown. I think he had a half crown in his pocket. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story, which was an entire paycheck like for him. And in fact, it might have been multiple paychecks, like the guy had forgotten to pay him and then pays him. So he has, even though we don't know exactly how much that is equivalent, let's just imagine it was a couple paychecks for you. And it was all in one bill. And some guy comes up to him and asks him if he can supply any money to him, like some down and outer guy. And he says, no, I, uh, I don't, don't have anything. Because he's thinking, there's no way. I mean, he has something, but he can't give up the half crown. And... So finally, in and through the story, it's a great story. Hudson Taylor actually says, look, I I actually do have something and gives it all because God was just working him over the whole time. So don't you have something, Hudson? Isn't there something in your pocket? Yeah, but God, if it was smaller, I would give it. If it was just a little smaller, I could give it. And he's negotiating back and forth. So the other day I had something, I don't know what it was, a big bill, one, like, one or two big bills, and I saw someone, and I actually, I, this is, I, I just feel terrible even having to admit this. Someone, was, I don't know, it was like one of those guys on the side of the street, don't remember what the circumstance was. I just remember feeling like I should give, and I, the light turned green, and <laughs> I just sort of, you know, it's like I said, busied myself in my brain, like, oh, and I, and I need to uh, make the, the, the left-hand turn here as quickly as I can. Sorry, God, that I sort of have to zoom by this guy, but you know, you know how those things work. Yeah, and as I'm driving down the road, I'm still feeling it, okay? In other words, I don't know that God does know how those things work. And so we all have had these situations where I begin to realize, I think my pencil's dull, These are the situations I want to be ready for. And I esteem the story, but I need to be with waist girded and lamp burning. And I have been caught without that. And I don't like acknowledging that, but I've been caught without that. Eric, stop what you're doing. Would you go wrestle with Kipling? I'm doing something very, very important here that has a deadline. 
wrestling, what kind of deadline does that have? And yet, every single one of us understands the value system of the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't put value on the things that we sometimes do. He puts value on wrestling with one of your children? I mean, what? Mm Mm-hmm. Eric, open your mouth. Would you give the gospel to that man over there? Eric, open your heart. Would you offer your child? Would you offer your child? That isn't how it was supposed to come out. Would you offer your home to that child? Tensions at the highest level. (laughs) Any of us that have ever gone through these processes, it alters your life. You don't get your life back when you give it. You give it. Eric, stop talking. Would you listen to what Lily is saying? So the word I have up on the screen is instant. And this is a word that the Bible actually uses. It can be translated in different ways. Ready is the translation that we oftentimes will get other than instant. But instant is a very descriptive word for us. Because we are supposed to be instant. Now, we don't use that word in our modern vernacular very often, but I think it's actually a good word for us to regain, to be instant. Now, typically instant in season and out of season, if you've ever heard that uh, statement. But obviously, I think even without me defining it, you know what that means. We know what instant means. It means immediate. It means without hesitation. It means when the door is knocked on, it's opened just as quickly, almost like you anticipated the knock, you saw the movement, and the door is opening, and Jesus is like, whoa, I didn't even get the knock in. Uh, That's because I'm instant. I'm ready to say yes. I'm so desirous for you to be home. I'm so desirous for you to give me a commission. I'm so desirous to wake up in the middle of the night. I'm so desirous to give up a big bill to someone I don't know on the side of the road. I'm so desirous to give up my project and go wrestle with my child. I'm so desirous to do this right. Lord Jesus, here's your man. Instant. 2 Timothy 4.2, be instant in season and out of season. You see, many of us, It's easier to be instant when we're in season. We oftentimes say, you know, when we're in church, we're more likely to be churchy. We're more likely to say things like, amen, brother. We're more likely to, you know, say the word hallelujah. We're more more likely to rejoice in difficulty. Why? Because we're surrounded in an environment where that's encouraged and it looks good. We get higher grade scores in people's perspectives when we behave properly. It's when we're out of that situation that we can oftentimes lose the sharpness. I really could care less. If we're faking it in here, you know, I would rather have us be you know, a total mess in here if we're going to be a mess somewhere else because we could work with that. But what I want to be is the same in season and out of season. I want to be ready to go. I don't want to just do good things because someone's watching me. It's like you're sitting next to me in the car and you see the same guy there on the street and you know that I have the big bill in my pocket and you're like, mm-hmm. And so I do it for you, not because God's asking. That is not the way I want to live my life. I want to do things when no one's looking, when no one will ever know about it, and I want to do it for him. Instant obedience versus delayed obedience. Here's a key question. Is delayed obedience obedience? If you're going to put off, my, my classic illustration is Atari, uh, I was the game Defender. I don't know if you guys remember Defender. 
But I flipped the game defender. I don't know if you can flip a game anymore. You get to a million points and flip to start at zero again. I did it! I did it! I'd been trying to do that for a long time. I had an undue amount of interest in that game, and I played it all the time. And so my mom would come in and go, Eric, it's time for dinner. You need to turn that off. (laughs) Well, obviously she doesn't appreciate what I'm accomplishing right now, okay? I am like all-time high score. I have a higher score than Peter right now, and I cannot wait to tell him that. And so there's no way I'm just going to stop now just because of dinner. And so then, you know, a few minutes later, my, my mom comes and she goes, Eric, I told you to turn that off. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she'll go, come back in a few minutes later. And Eric, I told you to turn that off. It's dinner time and we're all waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, just a second. I'm almost done here. And so then, then comes the, I'm going to count to three. So let me ask you guys, when is Eric going to turn it off? And is it obedience when he does? One. Just a second, just a second. Two, uh, come on, come on, just a second. Three, I'm done. I told you I would be done. I told you I was finishing this up. That is called delayed obedience, but that's not obedience. That's actually rebellion. I am doing it my way on my terms, and the only thing that's going to change that is the clear threat of punishment. That is actually not the way the kingdom of heaven functions. We don't function because God is saying, one, two, We're supposed to have our waist girded and our lamp burning. We're waiting for him to knock, and before he even knocks, we're like opening the door saying, yes, I'm ready. Before my mom even, I hear, I smell the meatloaf in the air. I'm like, oh, turn this crazy thing off. It's family time. When the tank seems dry, when you have slipped from sharpness, alacrity, and instant spirit obedience to sluggish self-justification and creative cover-ups for spiritual slovenliness. I have some big words in there. That's a classic Eric type of statement there. In other words, I've lost the sharpness to the pencil. I'm a dull pencil, and I'm excusing myself. It's like, hey, I, I think it's actually better if you're, it's a dull pencil. When getting up at 4.30 a.m. now seems impossible. So I have whole seasons of my life based around 4.30. I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about 4.30. My body sort of wakes up at 5. 4.30 is like in some zone of my night, which is like painful. And so 4.30 seems to be when God would be like, how about 4.30? It's like, well, God, it would be comfortable if it was 5. 4.30 is dependent territory where I wake up in sort of a fog bank. And most of you would encourage me to sleep till five. I can just hear it. It's like, Eric, why don't you sleep till five? You would, but God doesn't always have the same encouragement. He's like, Eric, would you do this for me? Oh, and so it now seems impossible. That's when I know I've, I'm missing the fuel in my lamp. I've let it run dry. When praying for three hours a day sounds like a distant fading thunder. Leslie and I had a whole season of our life where we prayed at least three hours a day. And now it could seem like a distant fading thunder. Remember that in the distance? When speaking boldly of your faith in Christ to an unbeliever suddenly feels painfully awkward and something to avoid. Have you ever had it where you're in a season of your life where you are in stride? You're in the groove and coming up to someone and boldly asking them about their soul condition is actually fun. And then you get to a point where, like, that isn't fun at all. This is awkward. This is strange. How did I used to do that? Why did I even used to do that? You see, something is running low in your life. 
when giving away your financial resources to build the kingdom of God is no longer the wise maneuver. I just don't think it's wise to give to those people on the streets. You, you, you suddenly have all these reasons why you can't really give that up, and it's, it's just not wise anymore. You see, what have we lost? We've lost that instant readiness. Loins girt, lamp burning. God, I hear you, and my answer is yes. Gird, girt, girded. That which must be done to ready a man for extreme exertion. That's what we're getting ready for, guys. Extreme exertion. The three gospel girdings. Christ was girt for battle. We are girt by Christ at the cross, and we are girt in Christ by faith. It's actually the gospel is found in this idea. Remember, it's also clothing. Christ was girt. He went to war on our behalf. And so he girded his waist to come and save us. He, was, he has girded himself with strength, Psalm 93.1. We are girt by Christ at the cross. And Ezekiel talks about God uh, girding his people. I girded thee about with fine linen, an incredible statement of the new covenant uh, to come. And then we are girt in Christ by faith. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. What are we being girt for? So just imagine, just the idea of being girt, is, it's sort of a funny word in my mind. I know my grandma's name was girt, but it sounds funny to me uh, to use that word. It's not as poetic sounding to me. Gird is at least better than girt. But uh, what are we being girt for? Well, ready to run, ready to climb, ready to leap, ready to lunge, ready to wrestle, ready to fight, ready to defend, ready for whatever trial might come. So that's what practical girding is. So if you were to look at the spiritual version of all of these, yeah, that's what we're being readied for. But let's get more specific. Yes, but what are we really being girt for? Ready to share the gospel. Ready to give an answer for the hope we have within. Ready to defend the truth. Ready to rescue the weak. Ready to give everything for the sake of Jesus. Ready to suffer for the glory of our King ready to bear a cross, ready to be stripped, ready to be scourged, ready to be crucified, ready to die that the testimony of Christ's love might be proclaimed. We need to be a sharpened pencil. To be ready, if our God asks to wake up at 3 a.m. and pray like we've never prayed before. To be ready, if our God asks to give up food for the day and fast. See, these are very granular now questions. It's like, Let's just, I'm not saying God wants to wake you up tonight to have you pray. I'm not saying that. I, I can't prescribe what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our individual lives. But I'm more saying, could you imagine just readying yourself to say, God, my night season is yours. And my answer is yes. And if you choose to wake me up, I'm deciding ahead of time that I'm going to be cheerful about that. That's a challenge, okay? Especially if any of you have a young child uh, and you already feel like your night is threatened, the last thing you need is Eric giving a message about being cheerful about having to get up in the middle of the night for a different reason other than to feed a child. And then food for many of us is a very, very precious thing. I'm not going to mention any families in here that it's very, very precious for, but I know that there are a few. And to be ready if our God asks to give up food for the day and fast. I don't know if you've ever had that where you're waking up in the day and you sort of have a thought of like your breakfast or your lunch, uh, and then you sense that God sort of puts his finger on your day and says, could you make this day a day 
set apart for me, very specifically in prayer and fasting. I don't know if you've ever gotten noisy in your inner man, you're like, oh, I didn't hear that, and I've already sort of eaten my, my cereal, I already got it going, once you sort of get that first bite, oh, that's too bad, sorry, maybe another time. But to actually be sensitive with your loins girt and your lamp burning, to say, absolutely, Lord, I trust you, Lord. If I'm not going to have food today, I trust that you will be a sustenance for me. To be ready if our God asks to testify of Jesus Christ to a stranger at the local grocery store. You see, to be ready is the key. To have your loins girt and your lamp burning is very, very imperative as a Christian. To be ready if our God asks to give away our entire savings account to someone he shows us. I mean, just giving a big bill was a a tough enough test, but our entire savings account, come on, that's unwise. Well, I'm not saying it would be unwise if God didn't ask you to do it. I'm just saying if God has control over your life, my point is we start out the day by saying, God, it all is yours. You show me what to do with it. To be ready to expect God to ask, to ask God to ask, and to diligently listen for God to ask us to do something that is not easy. Instead of creating noise in our life so that we don't hear his request to do things that are not easy, we silence ourselves, wrap our waist tight, fill our lamp with fresh oil, and anticipate the knock. And expect it with eagerness. Lord, it is my privilege to serve you today. So here's our mathematical formula. Uh, for those who can't see this, it, it is a mathematical formula, and it's GW plus BL equals RFAAE. So I do have an interpretive device on there, and that is girded waist plus burning lamp. So GW, girded waist, plus BL, my mom's name is Barb Ludi, so BL, uh, burning lamp. I think she'd probably like that. Uh, and so GW plus BL equals RFAAE, which is ready for anything and everything. So for each of us, I just want to freshly just call us back to this primary understanding of readiness in our soul. We belong to Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. Our day belongs to him. This is the day he has made. If we're going to rejoice and be glad in it, it's because he's in control of it. The secret to a Christian life is that God is at the helm. You want to be the happiest person on earth? Give up the controls of your life. Give up your time, give up your resources, it all belongs to him. Suddenly big smiles begin to crease your soul. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. So let's read through this scripture in Luke 12, 38. Uh, Actually, I'm taking just the last portion of it. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so in the GW plus BL condition, blessed are those servants. So we have these watches. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the watches of the nights, uh, but the Jews had three watches, and that was sort of like sunset to like 10 p.m., and then 10 p.m. to like 2 a.m., and then 2 a.m. to sunrise. And there would be a rotation oftentimes of watches, whether it's watching over a city, various things. When the Romans came in, they have four watches. So, and they they changed it. And so I'll I'll give you the the Roman uh, situation, uh, which is even, which is where we get our word evening, uh, and that's sunset to 9 p.m., midnight, uh, so 
when the so-and-so comes at midnight, that's a, that's a certain watch that uh, certain servants would have, 9 p.m. to midnight, cock crowing, which I thought was very interesting. I'd actually never heard that statement, but cock crowing is midnight to 3 a.m. My first thought is, how early do these cocks crow? <laughs> what in the world is that doing at 3 a.m.? And then morning, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So what we have is a question. If he doesn't come in the first watch, are you ready for the second watch? Or how about the third watch? Here's what I would say. Many of us have been watchful in our first watch, but then we get slumberous in our second watch. But if he, what's the good of being, having your waist girded and your lamp burning in the first watch if he's going to come in the second watch? It doesn't make any sense to fall asleep and to let your lamp go out and to untie your robe and let it flop around if he still has not yet come. We need to be anticipating. So as a result, what you see is Jesus actually saying, let me just read it again. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so in that girded waist and burning lamp condition, blessed are those servants. Which means it's not just the season we're in now. It's the next season we're in too. And it's not just the next season, it's the season after that. And we have seasons in our life which are sort of like watches. We can be on fire for Jesus in one season and then grow dim. Blessed are those servants who go the distance, who remember this principle Yes, it is very easy to grow dull. I live a very sharp life. I mean, my entire life is meant to be sharp, and I can still grow dull. How does that work? How can I be even thinking about being sharp all the time and still grow dull? Well, how much easier is it going to be for someone who doesn't have the focus on the gospel constantly like I have to grow dull? We need to exhort one another towards this lifestyle. Ephesians 6.10, you want to know how it works? Here it is. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. I'm not asking you to dig down inside of yourself and to pull off an impossible life. I'm saying you need to know where the strength comes from. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who keeps us sharp, who keeps us awake. Apart from Jesus, we're like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We fall asleep. Would you watch with me? And they're like, oh my... You ever had it where you, you can't even keep your eyes open? I remember I got to be in the big boy's seat. My dad's driving across country, and I got to keep him awake at night. Boy, was I pitiful. Uh, I got up there. I'm like, so uh, we're talking for a little bit, and then I, oh, wow, am I tired? My dad's like, how are you doing there? You keeping me awake? I'm like, yeah. And I was out. I drool coming down my cheek. It is hard when you're supposed to stay awake. Oh, you've never felt so tired. If you want to be awake, you need help from the outside. Outside of this body, you need some assistance. It's called the Holy Spirit. You need God to move in and enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Father, here we are, your servants, your saints, and we need you. Lord, many of us have begun to grow dull. This COVID season has been a dulling season for the church at large. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would start here with us and sharpen us. That you would show us how to spiritually gird our waist and how to spiritually have a lamp that is burning. Lord, we want to blaze for you. We want to be ready at the door, waiting as servants. And when you knock, we open immediately. Lord, may the idea of instant be a part of our life from this point forward. And Lord Jesus, where we are not instant, I pray that you would gently correct us. 
and that you would sharpen us afresh. Lord, here we are. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.